This podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. All right, that's a fun microphone situation there. Okay, all my wires are good. Good morning, everyone. Okay, I have to admit something to you all, and good evening, by the way, to Tuesday night and Wednesday, uh, Thursday morning as well. I'm going to start with true confessions, which is that when I got assigned to speak on Noah, I had to take a deep breath. It is not my favorite story in the Bible. Unlike so many children who have fond memories of Noah, Nancy Guthrie points out that it has some pretty gruesome images and some pretty harsh realities. And I've always struggled with those. But I know that God's word is a living word, and I just got ready to get in and wrestle with Noah, and that's what I've been doing for the last week. So I want to remind you of something as we start. I want to remind you that we are at the very beginning of the story right now. It feels like a lot has happened, right? A lot has happened, but really we're only a few chapters beyond creation. We're on chapter six out of 55 or 50 chapters in Genesis, and Genesis is only the first book of the Bible. And when you're writing a book report, You can't just read the first few pages and understand what it's all about, right? You have to read the whole thing. And the Bible is one whole story, which is a miracle given that it has so many authors across so many centuries. But what I love about this study is that we're really looking at these stories within the greater picture. And that's so important. So what I want us to see today in this story of Noah is that there is here the beginning of a thread of salvation that we're going to see run throughout all of Scripture, and it's going to culminate in Jesus. The climax is the cross. So as I thought about this story I really saw a trajectory of grace. It begins here with one man, Noah. But later in Genesis, we see it expand to Abraham and a whole nation. And then in Jesus, we see it go into the whole world. And I thought of it kind of like when a drop of rain falls into a still water and those pools go out. It's like um, that to me. Noah is the first drop. It's the first drop. And you're going to hear more about that later. And then there's these pools of grace that expand over the course of this wonderful, amazing, true story, the Bible. So... um, Steve preached on um, the incredible chiastic structure 
of this um, story, Noah. And um, if you don't go to our church or if you missed it, I encourage you to go back and listen to that. But very briefly, a chiastic structure comes from the word chi, which means X. And it's how often things were written in that time, which is, you know, today we have a literary structure called an essay. In an essay, you have an introduction, you have a thesis, supporting arguments, and a conclusion. So you look to the beginning to see what it's going to be about, and you look to the end. Well, in the chiastic structure, there are these poetic mirroring on either side, and it's incredible how it's done. So I really do encourage you to listen to that sermon. And then there's a central point right in the middle. That's where you look for the main point. And I say this because today I'm going to structure my talk around the first half of that chiastic structure. Then we're going to look at the second half. And then I'm going to end with the central point, much the way they would have done then, I guess. Much the way they would have looked at it then, at any rate. So let's begin with what, for me at least, is the uncomfortable part, the judgment the judgment that happens in the story of Noah. I'm going to get this Bible right out of the way so I can keep going. Um, we're just at the beginning of the story, and already the earth is full of violence and corruption. And the every intention, it says, and every thought of man's heart was toward evil. And we often talk about the flood in terms of sin more generally, but really, in this story, it's quite specific. God sees violence and evil and corruption, and not just a little. Every, continually, there is evil and wickedness and violence. It is pervasive, and it is extreme. So there's something very important that we learn here right at the beginning about God. And that is that he is deeply grieved by violence and evil. We might have expected him to be angry and retributive, but he is grieved. He is grieved. One of my favorite books is called The Divine Conspiracy. It's by a man named Dallas Willard. <clears throat> and in it, he talks about God's great capacity for joy. And Dallas is uh, in South Africa, and he walks down to the beach, and he sees there a scene like something he's never seen before. The light, the textures, the color, the power of the ocean. He is in awe. And he has this insight as he looks at it. He realizes God sees this all the time. And he not only sees this glorious moment, he sees every glorious moment throughout all of creation. He sees Everest at sunset and babies being born and, um, you know, a lion stalking in the desert. Whatever you think is glorious, he sees it all the time, and his capacity for joy is therefore limitless. Can you imagine being aware of all of that beauty and awe all of the time? Amazing. And that image um, struck me, but then I had another thought as I was reading it, 
which is that God also sees all of the suffering and all of the violence all of the time. So when you think of the millions of tragic and horrific moments of humiliations and defeats and destruction and violence and trauma happening throughout the world and throughout history, God is present to all of that at every moment too. Every second when horrible things are happening throughout the world, he knows each one deeply and personally. He has a limitless awareness of suffering and violence and trauma and grief as well. And how can a loving God respond to that awareness? He grieves. He grieves. And the word for grief there doesn't just mean emotional pain, it means physical pain as well. Have you ever grieved over violence and tragedy? When you do, you are aligning your heart with God's heart. It grieves over these things more than I think we could ever, ever imagine. Another thing that we learn from this story is that the natural consequences of violence and evil are death and destruction. It's pervasive right now on the earth in this moment of Noah. And it's seemingly without end. Martin Luther King has a great um, description of violence. It goes like this. The ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral, begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. It's a dark picture, but that is what violence is like. So I want you to imagine that kind of violence devouring itself in that time. And friends, love cannot abide by evil. It cannot cohabit with it. Something has to be done. And Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And in the flood, we're going to see what violence and wickedness deserves. And what, in fact, it already is perpetrating, right? Which is death. Violence is killing and death and destruction. And that's what's happening in the flood. And this is where we see a need for judgment, it's hard, but if you or someone you loved were the victim of some terrible, terrible violence and injustice, and the wrongdoer didn't care and was getting away with it and was unrepentant, is that really sufficient? Are you comfortable with that? Is that what grace looks like? We really cannot abide by having evil and atrocity in the world unaddressed, right? 
somewhere, somehow, we want justice, especially for those we love. And we are inadequate judges, are we not? I was a lawyer once, briefly, and I know that the justice system is very broken. So much evil goes unaddressed, and so many innocents are unjustly punished. We have to trust in a greater judge. We trust that our God, whose heart is patient toward those who are against him, and who longs to redeem the world, and who paid the ultimate price to do so, we trust that he will be a just judge. And there's comfort in that. Without him, there is no true justice. And without true justice, all of the suffering and violence in the world simply does not make sense. We have only meaninglessness and chaos and destruction. So in the story of Noah, we see the destructive cycle of violence come to an end in more destruction and violence. And the floodwaters come from above and below. And it might prompt you to remember that in the, book of, uh, in the creation story, God separates the waters above and below. He creates order in the chaos. It's one of the first things that he does. Well, now that separation is removed and chaos and destruction descend once more upon the earth. And yet, in the midst of all that chaos and destruction, there's a boat. There is a little raft of salvation and grace that somehow is making its way, and it's somehow a way for humanity to move forward. So do you see the beginning of the thread there? It's just a little beginning. One boat, one man and his family. So let's talk about the second half, salvation. In Noah, we see that salvation is also possible in the midst of judgment. God refuses to give up on his creation. But salvation here is limited to just the one man, because we're just at the beginning of the story. Tim Keller puts it this way. Here in Noah, we see the pattern of a solution without it being the final solution. It's a foreshadowing, if you will. So if you remember the raindrop and the concentric circles of grace, here we're going to see the drop of grace for one man where through Christ, we see it spilled out broadly for the whole world. So why Noah? Why Noah? Was Noah rescued because he was so perfect and blameless? We know he wasn't, because after the flood, Noah gets very drunk and embarrasses himself in front of his children. And the inspired author of scripture clearly saw it fit to keep it in there. He wasn't trying to make him out to be perfect. So what made Noah righteous in the eyes of the Lord? His faith. 
This is echoed throughout scripture, but this is the first time that we see that righteousness by faith. Righteousness by faith. And what did Noah's faith look like? It begins with a relationship with God. Scripture says Noah walked with God. He walked with God. He spent time with him. He knew him. He recognized his voice. And because there was a relationship, there was trust. And because there was trust, there was obedience. And what an obedience it was. Noah worked on that ark for decades. Decades. Some say 50 to 75 years. And all that time, people were watching him and mocking him. They had every opportunity to repent and join him on that boat, but they didn't. It took incredible trust, incredible faith for Noah to persist. But I want to stress here that God was not looking for perfection. He was looking for relationship. He was looking for someone to trust him. So then when Noah and his family are delivered from the flood, God establishes a covenant with Noah. And it's the first of several covenants that we see with, later with um, Abraham. You heard about that last Sunday if you go to sunset. And Moses and David and finally a whole new covenant in Jesus. And because God is a God of both truth and love, both of those things, as God is making the covenant, he acknowledges that humankind has evil in their heart. He's not, again, making the covenant because they somehow earned it. And yet, he says, never again. No more utter destruction. No more flood. No more getting what you deserve. Because when you love as God loves, judgment, even righteous judgment, hurts, doesn't it? So if the story of the flood hurts you as it does me, know that it hurt God as well. And he said, never again. And he said, never again on page 10 in my Bible, right at the beginning. And as a sign of the covenant, God hangs his bow in the sky as a sign and a reminder that this will not happen again. Remember, we're still at the beginning of the story, and that bow word in rainbow refers to a weapon. At the beginning of the story, God hangs up his weapon. He hangs it up. He says, no more. In my Bible, all you have to do is turn one page to see another thread added to the plan. It's the story of Abram, later Abraham, and the story of a nation, and already the descendants leading down to a future king. God is already weaving a greater plan for wider salvation, and grace is beginning to ripple outward. 
And at its climax, the climax of this story, we find a boat that is Jesus, already being woven through the early pages of the book. Again, in Noah, we see the pattern of the solution, but not its final solution. And I found this so interesting. In a sense, when God hangs his bow in the sky, he's pointing it now in a different direction. He hasn't resolved the problem of sin. It's still there. But where is he pointing his wrath? He's going to take it on himself. The bow, if I'll never look at a rainbow the same way again. If you pull an arrow, it's going to go heavenward, right? It's an image, an image that I found healthy, uh, helpful. So he's weaving a new story of salvation into the messy violence of humanity and beginning with Abraham, we're going to see a growing revelation of who God is and how his love pursues us toward that final act of self-sacrificial love. That's what the whole book is about. So that Martin Luther King quote about evil, that's not the end of it. It has um, a few more lines, some of my favorites. He says, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. And hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. So our loving God pays the ultimate price to stop the cycle of violence. And no one saw it coming, even with all the chapters that went before, not even the disciples. No one really understood how much God was willing to pay to save us from the consequences of sin and wickedness and evil and violence. To offer the final solution that the rainbow promises. But we have that privilege to look back and to see the thread of love begin to be woven more and more boldly over the years, beginning with Noah and a bow hung in the sky. So now we're coming to the central point of the story. The central point is not about judgment or salvation, apparently. And if you heard Steve's sermon, you know what it is. God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. Ultimately, the God of the universe wants us to know that he remembers us, that he is personal, and that the whole course of history revolves around his desire for relationship, not with a nameless mass of humanity, but with people, real people with real names like Noah, real people with real frailties like Noah. And the word remember here does not mean to keep from forgetting. It actually means to fulfill a promise to act on behalf of someone, to pay attention. Noah was in that boat 
for a year and 10 days. A year and 10 days where he floated on a sea of destruction coming from above and below, where he stranded on a mountaintop, and for a year and 10 days, he trusted God and he waited while chaos and destruction raged. And God did bring him safely to a new land and he was allowed to begin again. And that God is our God too. He sees you and he sees me in our own chaos and he is trustworthy to bring us safely to the other side. But his solution lasts for an eternity. I want to end with this verse from Hebrews. You all know about Hebrews, or many of you will, about the um, parade of um, great followers of faith throughout scriptures. And Noah is among those praised for his faith in those verses. And of Noah and others, Hebrews says this, all these people were, were, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country. Do you ever long for a better country? I do. A heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And by faith, friends, we too belong in that line. And we too have a city prepared for us. A permanent safe harbor from the storm. And Jesus is the vehicle that carries us through the storm of this life and puts us in that new country. So I hope that we will be encouraged today that he remembers you and he remembers me and he cared enough to point the bow at himself to provide a permanent solution to the violence and destruction of this world. And he hasn't given up. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us um, to trust you in the midst of the storms of this life? And Lord, would you give us a hope for our future destination that will help weather this storm? And we thank you, Lord, that we are safe within Jesus. We are safe within Jesus. And we trust you to bring us home. Amen.